hope that you, if you have not already listened to it, you will. But today we come back to Abraham's journey. We come back to Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 20 today. And before I dive into that passage, before we read it, I want to take a moment to recap since we've had a little bit of a break. We've spent four weeks studying the events surrounding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yahweh, Jehovah Magan, Adonai, the pre-incarnate Christ, he appeared, to Jesus, uh, he appeared to Abraham in the form of a person, and with him were two angels, also appearing like men. After demonstrating tremendous hospitality towards these three heavenly visitors, Abraham then learns that these three have come to assess the outcry of wickedness and injustice that have been pouring out of the valley of Sidim, the valley where Sodom is located, the very valley where Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living, where he had made a home. So Abraham then intercedes for Sodom, and he pleads that God would spare the city if only 50 are righteous, only 50 righteous are found. And through this demonstration of covenantal relationship, a dialogue emerges between God and his friend. And God allows that even if only 10 righteous people are found in Sodom, he will spare it. He will spare all the wicked for the sake of 10 righteous people. But when these two angels do eventually enter Sodom and they are greeted by Lot, they very quickly encounter an unhinged depravity. It's unleashed upon them. And, and these two witnesses, these two angels, soon validate Sodom's judgment. They see the depravity, and they can testify against it now by their declaration. By the declaration of the two witnesses, fire falls from heaven and consumes the cities of the valley. But after, only after these two witnesses literally drag Lot and Lot's family from Sodom and, and save their lives. And they say, flee from here. Flee the valley of Sidim. Get out. Go to the cliffs. And Lot instead pleads that, that he wouldn't have to, that he could stay in the valley, that he could go to Zoar, this little city, and dwell there. And the angels Amazingly, grant that request. God grants the request through the angels. And as Lot's family stands in Zoar, watching the smoke billowing up all around them, Lot's wife begins to weep over Sodom, looking back, wanting it, can't imagining her life without Sodom. Since she wants Sodom so badly, God gives to her the fate of Sodom, and she is turned to a pillar of salt. She shares in its destruction. Well, in time, Lot eventually flees Zoar. He chooses now to go to one of those caves and make his home there. And though purely by grace, Lot is righteous. The New Testament calls Lot righteous. Lot has become afraid of God's judgment. Like maybe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will, will happen to him. Though he has been saved, he is afraid of destruction. And he is a man of contradiction. Because of his many compromises and his worldly desires, because of his Sodomite daughters, Lot's line is only able to continue through shameful incest. It happens. The Moabites and Ammonites are born in that cave, two of Lot's perennial enemies. And right there in that cave, the story of Lot ends. It seems like he effectively dies in that cave. And in shame, and in obscurity, and in sorrow. But even there, we saw God's greater plan of redemption. A redemption that stands as an enduring hope for the nations, and a redemption that 
That is a hope for all of those who have been lost or all those who have wandered off or backslid. It's a hope for all of us. It's a hope in the redemption of Jesus Christ, which just screams out of the story of Lot once put into the context of the biblical narrative. Awesome. But today we leave Lot behind. Scripture leaves Lot behind and we return to Abraham. And we will see that same thread of hope continue in our passage today in Genesis 20. But also there's going to be this thread of Sodom that continues into it as well. And we're going to watch Abraham act out of fear rather than faith, much like Lot was doing. For a second time, Abraham is going to lie about his wife, calling, saying that, that Sarah is his sister, neglecting to inform a pagan king that she is his wife. So as we unfold the events of chapter 20, I, I want you to see some very deep, profound spiritual truths that are, that are here for us to mine. They shimmer beneath the surface. And then I also want to show you the ordinary, awesome reality of God's prophets. God's prophets are ordinary and awesome, or at least the role that they have been given. Let's look at Genesis 20 now. Follow along with me. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He, journeyed, he sojourned in, in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I, do, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who are before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female serve, slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and so good. So good of you to give it to us and reveal yourself through it, reveal things about us, reveal how reality works and morality, where we derive hope and faith, salvation, all these glories, which we so take for granted in the black and white pages in front of us, but not this morning, Father, not this morning. Help us to see, to know and understand 
glory in the truths of Scripture. And Father, let my words that I speak be true. Let us hear them in truth. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as we dive in, there is a single detail that we have to remember. Before, right before Sodom was destroyed, twice God promised Abraham that in about a year's time, Sarah would bear a son. Remember that? It was Genesis 18. We saw it in verses 10 and 14. So gestation is about nine months, nine months in the womb. That means after Sodom's destru- destruction, there was about a three-month window before Sarah conceived. With such a timeline, all the events of chapter 20, it can only mean that Abraham left Hebron almost immediately after Sodom burns. Abraham's reputation was significant. He was a notable guy now in, the, in Canaan, not only because of his wealth, which was obvious to any observer, he, but he also led that army. Remember, he led the army that defeated those rampaging overlords from the east. He was the victor, he was the conqueror, and now all the Canaanite kings, whether they were Amorite or Amalekite or Philistine or whomever, they would have known Abraham, and they would have been aware of Abraham's God. So it would seem that Yahweh and the man who served him were now very likely linked to the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. For immediately after Sodom's destruction, Abraham leaves Hebron, where he'd been camped for about 13 years. He leaves Hebron and he wanders into the middle of nowhere between the oasis at Kadesh and the walls of Shur. So look at this map. He was living up there in Hebron. Sodom was down here, burned up. And then immediately he takes off, goes into the middle of nowhere between Kadesh and the wall. Sure, sure means wall. It was a, a city likely on the border of the, Egyptian, of the kingdom of Egypt, which was a desert area where there's hardly a population. So he takes, just think about it, he takes his huge household, I mean, he, from which he could draw 318 fighting men, not to mention their families and the others. So his huge household, his prodigious flocks, he takes them all to that place. It's as if he's going there to hide out, to let things cool off. And who knows how long he went down there, maybe a month, maybe two, but it doesn't seem like that long because In a relatively short amount of time, he's up in Gerar setting up camp. You see Gerar up there just between Gaza and Beersheba. Gerar was the capital city of the Philistines, which means Abimelech was king of the Philistines. And then in short order, jeopardizing the mother of promise and the origins of conception, two verses inform us, or verse 2 informs us that the Philistine king uses his position and his power to take Sarah for himself, being deceived into thinking that she is Abraham's sister. So the author is really trying to get us to remember Egypt right now. Do you remember Egypt in chapter 12? Abraham went down there. He, he left Egypt. When Abraham left Egypt in chapter 12, he leaves and heads towards the Negeb. Now, Abraham goes through the Negev, moves towards Egypt, and he goes right back to those same old lies, saying that Sarah is just his sister. And for the second time, Sarah is taken into the harem of a foreign king, just like what happened in Egypt. Now, back in Egypt, we're told Sarah was taken because of her beauty. That's about 25 years ago now. Sarah is almost 90, or she is 90 at this point. So it's unlikely that Abimelech takes her out of lust. But because of Abraham's impressive and potentially ominous reputation, it's likely that Abimelech is trying to force peace here. 
For if Abraham's sister is in his harem, is in his household, it's a little unlikely that Abraham's God will destroy Gerar. But Abimelech is in for a rude awakening, literally. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Notice, God's charge against Abimelech is not one of adultery. It's a charge against kidnapping. He had taken Sarah. Not only is that theft, thou shalt not steal, but it's theft of a human. And not only is this stealing human, a, a human, but this human is one flesh with another. She is a married woman. But for the death sentence... The fact that Sarah is married is is immaterial. Kidnapping was wicked enough by itself. Centuries later, when God does deliver the law to the Israelites, it will become a capital punishment or a capital offense to kidnap somebody. It's punishable by death. See that in Exodus 21.16. And this is exactly what God is threatening Abimelech with. You've kidnapped, now you must die. Though we see that this warning is actually an opportunity for Abimelech to repent. So it looks like Abimelech has found no escape from God, that God who had leveled the valley of Sidim, which is what he was looking for in taking Sarah. He has found no escape from that kind of destruction. The eye of Yahweh sees the accumulated injustices of nations and he sees the particular offenses of individuals. And he sees them the same. And they are equally egregious to him. Now see verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. The integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Text is making it abundantly clear that Abimelech, did not violate Sarah. The text is leaving no room for a question to arise of Isaac's patrimony, of Sarah's forthcoming son. It's important to see here in verse uh, verse 4 that Abimelech does not use a term for God, like Hebrew Adonai, which would be capital L, Lord, it's often translated that way. So instead, he uses a general term of respect, a lowercase l, Lord, which is a literary sign to say that Abimelech, he possessed a knowledge of God, he understood something about God, but he had no love for God, he had no relationship for God, he had no trust in this God. He was just a typical polytheistic pagan of the ancient Near East, and this was probably just another God among all the others. Even still, and this is interesting, even still, how interesting that Abimelech appeals to the justice of God. His expectation is that a good God does not kill innocent people. But where does this idea come from? Abimelech is appealing to an objective moral code. Something embedded on his heart. A code that comes from the very God to which he is seeing in his dream. Oh, he doesn't realize that. Nonetheless, you can see that his moral code contains corrupted files. Which is why God is appearing to him in this vision. But even within the vision, even as God is telling him and revealing to him things, Abimelech doesn't seem to register that God's accusation primarily deals with kidnapping. It's it's very likely that he and his people don't see anything wrong with kidnapping. And kidnapping and enslaving people was widely practiced. It was routine, run-of-the-mill. In the ancient world, everywhere on the planet, that was normal, not sinful. It's amazing that that is born out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Adultery, though, 
He clearly sees as offensive. He clearly sees adultery as wrong. So when he thinks he's being accused, he thinks he's being accused of adultery. But since he has not committed this wickedness, his conscience is clear. So he feels that he is innocent. He says, my hands are clean. And we can see that Abimelech's moral code is, in some ways it's corrupted, and in other ways it's accurate. It's all twisted up. Look how he links his fate with the fate of his people in verse 4. He's saying that to kill him, to kill Abimelech, is to kill the Philistines, or at least the Philistines in Gerar. He's, he's thinking of Sodom. He's remembering Sodom. He knows that the king of Sodom was killed in Sodom with the Sodomites. Verse 6. Then God said to him in, a dream, in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech's appeal implied this act of conscience. He knew adultery was wrong, yet whether it was by disease or by desire, it was God who prevented that adultery. God was the one who didn't let the adultery happen. Amazing. And God's sovereign choice governs and guides the will of man. God's sovereign choice governs and guides the will of man. Humans have agency, but God rules the wills of men. And so Abimelech is responsible for his actions. Just as we are responsible for our actions. And Abimelech's actions were wrong, objectively wrong, even if he didn't understand it. So I think it would have made a lot more sense to have responded to Abimelech like, like this Look, I know you didn't commit adultery with Sarah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kidnapping. You kidnapped her. So what's wrong with you that you don't even understand that kidnapping is wrong? Isn't that how you would want to respond to Abimelech here? But praise God that he is gracious and kind and his graciousness and his kindness far exceeds that of man. God knows that Abimelech's conscience did not steer him away from kidnapping Sarah and and somehow he was fine with it? Though he could have, God does not immediately condemn Abimelech. Instead, he is gracious with Abimelech and commends him for acting with integrity. Do you see that? I know you acted with integrity in your heart. Meaning that, that he, Abimelech has not violated his conscience. He didn't feel that it was wrong internally, by the operation of the conscience, and so God commends him for integrity accordingly. Now, of course, this is not integrity according to God's moral code, according to God's will. That's something different. But see what's right under the surface. Until Abimelech had this vision, until he received the word of God, he had this revelation, until then, he was innocent because his unsanctified conscience was clear. It isn't until God tells him to give Sarah back, until God reveals his will to Abimelech, that Abimelech's guilt is revealed, as well as the consequence of death. We stumble into this fundamental element of reality, judgment, and understanding. For all who do not have the revealed word of God, who have not received his law, God judges them according to their conscience. Or you might say, according to their words. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That, that's a scary passage. Judgment is based on a person, person's conscience. So the conscience is like this spiritual sensor that God has implanted into every person to detect his moral code. It's like the detective agent of God's moral code, a little internal judge to say that's right, that's wrong, and guide you accordingly. Of course, sin corrupts the conscience and it distorts its abilities for detection, but even still, nearly every single human conscience is able to detect some measure of God's righteousness, of his righteous law. So I'm going to give you some examples. And this is why when you judge by your words is a scary thought. So you say that you hate it when people gossip, especially when they gossip about me. And then you go ahead and gossip. You prove your guilt. Your conscience knows it's wrong. You go against it. You are condemned by your own words. You say you hate liars. You lie. You say you hate racism. And then you are racist. You say arrogance is wrong and then you self-righteously act like your plans are more important than others, then your conscience and your words will stand as two witnesses against you on the day of judgment. It's true for all humanity. Now, when a person encounters the law of God, when they come into revelation of the divine revealed will, then they are held accountable for violations against that. See, when God draws you towards himself, when he reveals knowledge of himself to you, to a person, the more that his will is revealed. The closer you come to he who is holy, your conscience must necessarily become sanctified or refined or more precise. In other words, you see this all throughout Jesus' teachings, The more you have, the more will be required. This is what's happening, to a small degree, in Abimelech's dream. God reveals himself and immediately moves Abimelech from his incomplete convictions, his corrupted convictions, into a fuller picture. It happens when God effectively says in verse 7, and I'm now paraphrasing, Kidnapping is evil, and if you do not repent and give her back, you will die, you and all your people. You will become like Sodom. The only way you will live is to repent, give Sarah back, and have Abraham pray for you. In verse 7, I don't know if you realize it, but there are two firsts in that one verse. The first time in the whole Bible that we see the word prophet and we see the word pray. This is important, important that they come together. God wants to see, a, see this critical link between prophets and prayer. I'm going to circle back on this in a little bit. Read verse 8 now with me. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants, told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. So Abimelech wakes up, he calls his royal council together, his advisors, his nobles, servants of the house, and he tells them of his vision. And they tremble together. They are together afraid of this God, the God of Abraham. In the context of what just happened in Sodom, it makes a lot more sense why they are afraid. They are still pagans, but knowledge of the true and living God has begun in them. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. As I said when I preached through Proverbs a couple years back, fear is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not meant to be the end. It's just the starting point. So think of this progression. There's fear of God. And in the beginning, Likely from judgment. You're afraid of judgment. You're afraid of going to hell. You don't want that. You don't want Sodom's fate. And that's meant to move into awe and respect of God, who is so powerful. 
And that's meant to move towards love. A God who saves from judgment, who offers mercy, who graciously gives. And his, his loving him, loving him for his kindness is meant to move us towards obedience. Following him and doing, him, doing the things that he wants us to do according to his will, according to his law. And wisdom is meant to move, uh, obedience is meant to move us towards wisdom. So we move from into fear, then to awe and respect, to love, to obedience, to wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear of God is found now in Gerar. A direct and ironic contradiction to something Abraham's just about to say a couple verses later. Look at verses 9 and 10. But Sarah, no, wrong chapter. Then Abraham, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this, this thing? <laughs> for the second time, Abraham bears the reproach of a pagan king. And for a second time, God uses a pagan king to reprove his chosen man. Abraham's lie is wrong. He deserves a rebuke from the Lord. And Abimelech is rightly offended by this lie. He's clearly incensed. He's, he's angry. He may even be livid, sounds like he is, when he accuses or asks Abraham these questions. But Abimelech is playing the victim. Yes, he was lied to, but isn't isn't it him who's committed the greater sin? We would all say. He's kidnapped a person. Verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my, th- my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say to me, He is my brother. Again, we're reminded Abraham lived in a world very different than our own, where kidnapping was normal and powerful men could take what they wanted, even if it meant other people. So Abraham feared that to avoid committing adultery, avoid the shame of adultery, which appeared to be a common or a despised sin in Canaan, so appear in an attempt to avoid that shame, if one of these powerful men, one of these foreign kings wanted his wife, Abraham would be murdered. It's not a crazy scenario. Think of King David who eventually would murder Uriah in order to marry his wife, Bathsheba. He didn't want to be accused of adultery, so he murders Uriah. So Abraham and Sarah continue their lie, the lie they've been telling for decades. They didn't want that to happen to them. Now at this point, helping keep the lie alive all these years Sarah's just as guilty as Abraham. But the ruse had some success before, so we might as well keep it going. So it seems is their justification. Now back in chapter 12, we saw they really are brother and sister. They have the same father. They don't have the same mother. They're, they're half-siblings. Such things were not uncommon pagan world, the world in which Sarah and Abraham were called out of, and it wouldn't be until the Mosaic law is given to the Israelites hundreds of years later that God officially, openly declares this kind of incense to be evil, to be an abomination. Regardless of this half-siblingship, lie is a lie, and a lie of omission is just as much a lie. Abraham thought there was no fear of God in Gerar. But it would seem that in this story, Abimelech fears God more than Abraham does. Abraham fears men, 
So he lies, and he jeopardizes his wife, and he jeopardizes God's promises. Abimelech is the one who hears from God, he fears God, and he follows with obedience. But sadly for Abimelech, it appears that this repentance and this obedience and this fear is merely temporary, and he is not interested in truly knowing the, the God who saves, the God who gives covenant. No, he's more interested in saving his skin. And I think there were a lot of hands that went up and a lot of people that went up to the altar, perhaps in Billy Graham crusades, that were just trying to get out of hell. But they found no path because they didn't really want to know God. Now verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So Sarah, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So just like Pharaoh, just like back in Egypt, Abimelech lavishes Abraham with livestock and servants. Conversely, while, Abraham, while Pharaoh expelled Abraham from his land, Abimelech offers the best of his land. Go wherever you want. And I think, again, we see God guiding the choices of Abimelech because Abimelech temporarily owned a possession or a piece of the promised land. And then, after offering these things to Abraham, Abimelech turns to Sarah, and I think with a twinge of sarcasm in his voice, Abimelech promises to give her brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now, the convention of the day was to offer the head of the household a gift if it was going to a woman. So this gift of a thousand pieces of silver is a gift for Sarah, given through Abraham. Of this amount of a thousand pieces of silver, one commentator writes, a Babylonian laborer usually paid, usually paid half a shekel per month would have to have worked 167 years to earn such a sum. It's an incredible amount of money. The king gives this extravagant gift, this unbelievable sum, as a public confirmation that Sarah remained pure. An act that is increasingly important since God is soon going to cause Sarah to become pregnant and we are just a chapter away from the birth of the promised son. And there should be, God wants there to be no doubt for anybody in that day or today the origins of that son. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female servants so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The prophet prays and the pagan is healed. So also are all the women of the household. This again, much like what happened in Egypt. The, the way it happened was a little different, but God afflicted that household with some illness related to their sexual organs, which may cause us to question, did Abimelech not touch Sarah because he didn't want to, or did he not touch Sarah because he couldn't? How is it that God prevented these things? Regardless, Abraham prays. And he doesn't pray as, if, as one who has been wronged. He prays because he is a prophet. He prays out of his office, because of his station, because of his duty, you would say. And they are healed. Sarah's still barren, but all the women in Gerar are now fertile. But it is a foreshadowing of what's about to happen within the womb of this 90-year-old woman. How gracious is our God towards his chosen people. Though Abraham and Sarah continue in this stupid lie, 
And once again, they fail to trust in God's provision, and they fear man rather than fearing God. Once again, God lovingly, abundantly, lavishly, undeservedly demonstrates his faithfulness to his covenant people because of the covenant. Not because of them, not because of what they've done, but because he has chosen to make a covenant with them. Because he has made promises to them, and he does not fail, even when they do. And if Abraham was wealthy before, how much more now? Why doesn't God judge Abraham according to his words? Because of the covenant. Abraham knew more. He understood more. He should have been held to that higher standard. And he was. But God does not judge him for it or condemn him for it. In fact, he blesses him in spite of it. This is the gospel. All of us know the wrongs that we do. We lie. We steal. We gossip. We eat too much. We watch too much TV. We're lazy. We worry about things we shouldn't worry about. We fear men. And on and on and on. That list could go. And all of us know it's wrong. But thank God that we will not be judged for these things because Christ, who lived perfectly, who did not sin one bit, upheld 613 commands of the law, lived perfectly, a lamb without blemish, stood in our place, died our death, took our judgment, so that in his life we could be free by faith. Rescued and redeemed and counted amazingly righteous. How, it, how could it be except from a God who is so faithful and merciful and gracious? Despite Abraham's faithlessness, God announces that he will be the Bible's first prophet. Imagine the thoughts of this pagan king. This guy? This guy is your prophet. He lied. He married his half-sister. How strange. But God's great faithfulness, even when the faithfulness of his people is so faulty. So let's think about this more, this idea of the prophet who prays. Now, being that this is the first instance of prophethood in the Bible, there's something very important for us to learn here. He's the first prophet. He's not the last prophet. And in fact, if we share in the faith, if we share in his faith through Jesus Christ, then we have all received the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the spirit of prophecy dwells within you as much as the spirit of Jesus dwells within you. And we are a prophethood of all believers. If you are in Christ, then you are one of his prophets. Not because of anything you have done. In fact, in spite of what you have done, but because Jesus graciously dwells in you. Therefore, because of him, we are prophets of the living God. And so many people want to make this about foretelling the future or receiving these secret words of knowledge from the Lord, all kinds of other super spiritual experiences. But Abraham gives us this unspectacular, very ordinary pattern of what it means to be a prophet. He represents God and he prays. Not too unlike the land of Canaan, we live in a pluralistic world. A world that I, I really believe is growing increasingly pagan. And the pagan consciences that have wandered so far from God, their moral understanding is, cryptid, sorry, is crippled 
by corrupted files. I mean, aren't all of us still working on getting the corrupted files out of our consciences? How much more those who haven't even started? So let's not confuse them or anger them or wound them by sinning against them, prophets. We read Genesis 20 and we think, you're an idiot, Abraham, how stupid of you. But have you ever lied to an unbeliever? Have you ever lashed out in anger? Have you done something, you got caught doing something wrong before the eyes of an unbeliever? Have you misrepresented God as Abraham misrepresented God? I have, I have. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be his priestly prophets and we must not treat this lightly. The eyes of the world are upon us. We are the lights of the world and we want to be faithful ambassadors representing Christ, not just in words, but in deeds. The second thing we must do with this prophethood is to pray. We pray for the hurting and we pray for the deceived, and we pray for the wounded, and we pray for the fearful. We pray that they would be healed. That their understanding of God, whatever that is, would grow into something that's life-giving and true in Jesus Christ. We pray for them, that they would repent of their sins and believe. Believe in the Christ who died to save them from judgment. His prophets, Christ's prophets, labor in prayer in part to intercede for those who are lost. So let's do this for the nameless billions that are going to hell. Let us pray for them every second that ticks on that clock. Souls are going to hell. And God has sent us to pray for them and represent him to them. It certainly is a good thing that we pray together as a church for the Muslim world as we are doing through Ramadan. Grab one of those booklets and do it as a family. i share a text with you that I got from our missionary in Delhi, India, Garrett Simerson. This is sort of like an inverse of Abimelech's dream. Garrett writes, In Bengal today, facilitating a training of about 40 youth and church leaders who are eager to see the gospel spread across their district. One of the women in the prayer team said she woke up this morning after having a dream in which the goddess Kali threatened her and promised that she wouldn't let this, happen, this meeting happen. Pray that churches would be bold, obedient in the face of oppression and the district be saturated with the gospel. Demons threatening people in dreams. Yes, we can pray. We can pray for the lost. But how much more potent when we pray for specific people with names, with faces we know, people we interact with, Pray for, we want to pray for them in private, certainly, but what if we prayed for them in public, right then and there, right when that need is expressed? What if we prayed for them just as Abraham did in Genesis 20? Abimelech, God told Abimelech to ask Abraham to pray for him. I was running a construction job a bunch of years ago, and I ended up building, building a good relationship with a plumber who was on the job site. And we had lots of spiritual conversations. We acted, we, we engaged with one another very much. And one day he comes up to me and we have this conversation going and he tells me that he had a biopsy done and he's really afraid of the results of this biopsy. And he just kind of stops. And I knew, I knew what he wanted. He wanted me to pray for him. And he was not a believer. So I did. 
And I think God may have been guiding him, much like God guided Abimelech. Now, find one of your prophets and have them pray for you. I prayed for him right in the middle of the job site, and other people were, were working around us, and there was no miracle, and there was no salvation, at least I'm, that I'm aware of. But when I saw the tears in his eyes after that prayer, I knew he was blessed, and I knew that he had heard the truth. There have been other times where I approached unbelievers, whether they be friends or strangers, and I asked if I could pray with them right there, right in that moment. Again, no miracles or salvation that I'm aware of, but a heartfelt prayer laced with the truth, and who knows what God may do with that. It's so simple, and it takes virtually nothing from you. So why not? How awesome the privilege to pray for the lost, for the dying, and if God wills, lead some of them into everlasting covenant with an aboundingly faithful God. That is a privilege given to you. Brothers and sisters, Abraham gives us this practice right here in Genesis 20. He models it. Even, even if it doesn't happen perfectly. So if nothing else, let us remember this prophet who represents God and he prays for the nations. For through Abraham, the nations are blessed. It's part of the covenant promise. And through us, the church, because of Christ, the nations will be discipled. We live in the same covenant as Abraham, now unfolded and exploded because of Christ, far more powerfully now. And we, like Abraham, are prophets of the living God. Let us not take this calling lightly. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Once again, we praise you that you speak to us through it. Help us to not be ashamed of it, but to go out from here as your prophets representing you, speaking your truth, and praying, praying for the lost. Perhaps, if it's your will, you would even allow us to lead them into your kingdom. Oh God, do this. Use us. Move powerfully in our midst, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.